Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Debbie Thomas. My essay this week is entitled, I Will Pour Out My Spirit. It's based upon the lectionary readings from May 31st, 2020, Pentecost Sunday. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. This is the opening sentence of our reading from the book of Acts, and I have to confess, it makes me sad. In a literal sense, many of us can't relate to what the sentence describes. Because of COVID-19, it is not prudent for us to be together in one place. We are confined to our homes, we can't gather for prayer and fellowship, and we don't know when we'll share bread and wine again around a common table. It feels difficult to contemplate togetherness, much less celebrate a great feast day like Pentecost in this context. But in another sense, we are in one place. We are in a hard place, a hollow place, a place of vulnerability and grief. We are together in our uncertainty, together in our loss, together in our hopes and fears. Across all sorts of distances, geographical, cultural, linguistic, and socioeconomic, we are bound together as one people, one humanity, one planet, facing a common threat that knows no borders. Like the disciples in our gospel reading for this week, we are huddled together behind locked doors, waiting for Jesus to come among us and say, Peace be with you waiting for him to breathe on us, waiting for him to speak the words we need so desperately, receive the Holy Spirit. Pentecost, from the Greek Pentecostos, meaning 50th, was a Jewish festival celebrating the spring harvest and the revelation of the law at Mount Sinai. In the New Testament Pentecost story Luke tells, the Holy Spirit descended on 120 believers in Jerusalem on the 50th day after Jesus' resurrection. The Spirit empowered them to testify to God's saving work, emboldened the Apostle Peter to preach to a bewildered crowd of Jewish skeptics, and drew 3,000 converts from around the known world in one day. For many Christians, Pentecost marks the birthday of the Church. The story Luke describes is a fantastical one, full of details that challenge the imagination. Tongues of fire, rushing wind, bold preaching mass baptism. But at its heart, the Pentecost story is not about spectacle and drama. It's about the Holy Spirit showing up and transforming ordinary, imperfect, frightened people into the body of Christ. It's about God disrupting and disorienting our humdrum ways of engaging the sacred so that something new and holy can be born within and among us. It's about the Spirit carrying us out of suspicion, tribalism, and fear, into a radical new way of engaging God and our neighbor. Luke tells us that the disciples were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them ability. At this sound, the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Those of us who speak more than one language might be the best equipped to grasp the import of this miraculous moment. Those of us who are bilingual, or better yet, well-versed in many languages, understand implicitly that a language equals far more than the sum of its grammar, vocabulary, and syntax. 
Languages carry the full weight of their respective cultures, histories, psychologies, and spiritualities. To speak one language as opposed to another is to orient oneself differently in the world, to see differently, hear differently, process and punctuate reality differently. To speak across barriers of race, ethnicity, gender, religion, culture, or politics is to challenge stereotype and risk ridicule. To attempt one language as opposed to another is to make oneself a learner, a servant, a supplicant. It is a brave and disorienting act. Has there ever been a time when we've needed such brave, border-crossing acts more acutely than we do right now? As the world grows more and more tribal, as nations, cities, and even faith communities turn on each other out of suspicion and selfishness, as we're forced by the pandemic to physically separate from those around us, can it be that God desires to pour out the Holy Spirit on us so that we might learn new and life-giving ways of being the church, being the body, being love incarnate for a frightened and imperiled world? What languages do we need to speak right now that we've never spoken before? Where does the fire need to fall to burn away all that hinders us from being bearers of good news in this dark time? When the disciples and their friends began to speak in foreign languages, the crowds gathered outside their meeting place understood them. And this, the fact of their comprehension, was what confused them. They were not confused by the message itself. The message came through with perfect clarity in their respective languages. What the crowds found baffling was that God would condescend to speak to them in their own mother tongues, that he would welcome them so intimately with words and expressions hearkening back to their birthplaces, their childhoods, their beloved cities, countries, and cultures of origin, as if to say, this spirit-drenched place, this fledgling church, this new body of Christ is yours. You don't have to feel like outsiders here. We speak your language too. Come in. Come in and feel at home. As Christians, we place great stock in language, in words. Like our Jewish and Muslim brothers and sisters, we are people of the book. We love the creation stories of Genesis in which God births the very cosmos into existence by speaking. And God said, In the beginning was the word we read in John's dazzling poem about the incarnate Christ. On Sunday mornings, we profess our faith in the languages of liturgy, creed, prayer, and music. In short, we believe that language has power. Words make worlds and unmake them too. What I love about the words and languages unleashed at Pentecost is that their articulation required surrender and humility on both sides. Those who spoke had to brave languages far beyond their comfort zones. They had to risk vulnerability in the face of difference and do so with no guarantee of welcome. They had to trust that no matter how awkward, inadequate, or silly they felt, the words bubbling up inside of them New words, strange words, scary words, were nevertheless essential words, words precisely ordained for the time and place they occupied. Meanwhile, the crowds who listened had to take risks as well. They had to suspend disbelief, drop their cherished defenses, and opt for wonder instead of contempt. They had to widen their inner circles and welcome strangers with accents into their midst. Not all of them managed it, Some sneered because they couldn't bear to be bewildered, to have their neat categories of belonging and exclusion explode in their faces. Instead, like their ancestors at Babel, who scattered at the first sign of difference, they retreated into the well-worn narrative of denial. Nothing new is happening here. This isn't God. 
these are blubbering idiots who've had too much to drink. But even in that atmosphere of suspicion and cynicism, some people spoke, and some people listened, and into those astonishing exchanges, God breathed new life. Something happens when we speak each other's languages. We experience the limits of our own words and perspectives. We learn curiosity. We discover that God's great deeds are far too nuanced for a single tongue, a single fluency. I hope that the Pentecost story compels us because it's a story for this time, this moment. As we continue to face the coronavirus pandemic as people of faith, we will be tempted to grow complacent or to despair or to turn in on ourselves and forget that we are part of a much larger whole. We live in a world where words have become toxic, where the languages of so many cherished isms threaten to divide and destroy us. The troubles of our day are global, civilizational, catastrophic. If we don't learn the art of speaking across the borders that currently separate us, we will burn ourselves down to ash. It is no small thing that the Holy Spirit loosened tongues to break down barriers on the birthday of the church. In the face of difference, God compelled his people to engage. In the face of fear, Jesus breathed forth peace. Out of the heart of deep difference, God birthed the church. So, happy birthday, brothers and sisters. Receive the Holy Spirit. Together, may we grow into all that Christ longs to pour into us, his body. For books this week, Dan reviews Jenny O'Dell's How to Do Nothing, Resisting the Attention Economy. Jenny O'Dell is an artist-writer who was born and raised in Cupertino, home to Apple's futuristic campus. She's also a graduate of Berkeley and a lecturer at Stanford, so she's well-placed to offer a counter-narrative to the technological paradigm in which we all now live. In our technological society that is an increasingly closed system, we are the product not the customer. Advertisers are the customers. In exchange for free stuff, we forfeit massive amounts of big data about ourselves, which companies turn into sophisticated algorithms to manipulate us. And mass behavioral addiction is not an unfortunate consequence of internet engagement. It's the carefully crafted business model of the digital giants. What to do? As her title suggests, Odell challenges us to disengage from this all-consuming attention economy through doing nothing, and that in turn we re-engage with any number of habits that are far more healthy and human. By doing nothing, what she really means is something similar to what many others have recommended. Mindfulness, solitude, silence, awareness, attention, contemplation, and interiority. She's not recommending that we retreat from and renounce the world, which in her view is irresponsible, misguided, and impractical, if not impossible. For me, she writes, doing nothing means disengaging from one framework, the attention economy, not only to give myself time to think, but to do something else in another framework. She also calls this refusal in place. The challenge is to avoid both conformity and withdrawal. Odell has written something like an intellectual manifesto that draws upon impressively broad diversity of thinkers, technologists, Jaron Lanier, poets, Wendell Berry, Dissenters, Thoreau, musicians, John Cage, novelists, David Foster Wallace, philosophers, Cicero, Buber, artists, David Hockney, psychologists, William James, 
theologians, Jonathan Edwards, Merton, and scientists, Linnaeus. The book is also written in the first person like a contemporary memoir, and so she also includes dozens of personal anecdotes about disengaging from the technological system and re-engaging the world in healthier ways. For more on these important themes, see Akiko Bush's How to Disappear, Notes on Invisibility in a Time of Transparency, Adam Alter's Irresistible, The Rise of Addictive Technology and the Business of Keeping Us Hooked, Erling Kagey's Silence in the Age of Noise, Jaron Lanier, 10 Arguments for Deleting Your Social Media Accounts Right Now, Cal Newport's Digital Minimalism, Choosing a Focused Life in a Noisy World, and Sherry Turkle, Reclaiming Conversation, The Power of Talk in a Digital Age. For films this week, Dan reviews Clive Davis, The Soundtrack of Our Lives. If you had to name one person who has had the greatest influence on popular music in the last 50 years, Clive Davis would be a good choice. After graduating from Harvard Law School and then practicing law for five years, he joined Columbia Records at the age of 28. My life changed forever, he recalls in his documentary about his 60 years in the business. His baptism of fire came at the 1967 Monterey Jazz Festival, which, he jokes, he attended in his white pants and tennis sweater. No matter. He remembers being blown away by Janis Joplin. Quote, I know it's a cliche, but I felt my spine tingle. She was hypnotic. He signed Joplin that night. And in the ensuing years, he would sign everybody from Barry Manilow and Kenny G to Notorious Big I.G., the 19-year-old Whitney Houston, the saddest part of this movie, and stars in almost every popular genre, rock, pop, country, urban crossover, punk, jazz, rap, and hip-hop. Davis seems to have had a natural gift that he never knew he had, to identify and then match great songs with great artists, and then to development them. For the most part, David tells his own story, but the film also incorporates the insights of friends, industry experts, artists, and archival footage. I watched this movie on Netflix. And lastly, for poetry on this Pentecost Sunday, O Comforting Fire of Spirit by Hildegard of Biggin. O Comforting Fire of Spirit, Life, within the very life of all creation, holy you are in giving life to all. Holy you are in anointing those who are not whole. Holy you are in cleansing a festering wound. O sacred breath, O fire of love, O sweetest taste in my breast which fills my heart with a fine aroma of virtues. O most pure fountain, through whom it is known that God has united strangers and inquired after the lost. O breastplate of life and hope of uniting all members as one, O sword belt of honor, enfold those who offer blessing. Care for those who are imprisoned by the enemy and dissolve the bonds of those whom divinity wishes to save. O mightiest path which penetrates all, from the height to every earthly abyss, you compose all, you unite all. Through you clouds steam, ether flies, stones gain moisture, waters become streams, and the earth exudes life. You always draw out knowledge, bringing joy through wisdom's inspiration. Therefore, praise be to you who are the sound of praise 
and the greatest prize of life, who are hope and richest honor, bequeathing the reward of light. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for May 31st, 2020. I'm Debbie Thomas.